my dear Bagginses and Boffins, Tukes and Brandybucks, Grubs, Chubs, Hornblowers, Bulgers, Bracegirdles, and Proudfoots. Proud feet. Welcome to My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, an unexpected journey through the legacy of the Lord of the Rings film trilogy, Night 20 Years Hence. Wish. Frodo. She's an elf. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Flight to the Ford, our ninth episode on the Fellowship of the Ring from 2001. We meet Arwen Undomiel, who whisks away Frodo in hopes to get him to Rivendell before his wound, or the Nazgul, take him. But first, our spoiler warning. While the Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. And I've been plugging the Patreon stuff every episode, so you guys probably know that. Go to patreon.com slash bomb. But I do want to announce a lament I have. Uh, last week, when we were supposed to record this episode, was right after I got my flu and booster shot for covid And I was really hoping to do some method podcasting because I was literally dying like Frodo will be in this episode. And Emily would have, you know, rode me to safety or something like that or carried my load. Um, Unfortunately, we didn't get to do that. But, you know, there's always that. Anyway, so for today's discussion, we figured we'd go over the format of the books and how they are broken up. While the books ultimately break down into a trilogy a la the films, those three books don't necessarily start and end where the films do. And on top of that, each book breaks down into smaller components. The end of book one, for example, ends with Frodo's flight to the Ford and the flooding of the Nazgul, which is why we decided to talk about this today. And I'll hand it over to Emily to kind of talk about the difference in formatting. Yeah, so um, I want to start this off um, by reading a kind of funny but despairing quote from Tolkien's letters because I think it really sets the tone for why he's done this book the way that he has. Um, But the quote, um, and if you want to go searching through his letters, it's from letter 131. Um, But the quote is this, "Um, it is not possible even at great length to plot the Lord of the Rings in a paragraph or two. It was begun in 1963 um, and every part has been written many times. Hardly a word in its 600,000 or more has been unconsidered. And the placing, size, style, and contribution to the whole of all of the features, incidents, and chapters have been laboriously pondered. I do not say this in recommendation. It is, I feel, only too likely that I am deluded, lost in a web of vain imaginings of not much value to others, in spite of the fact that a few readers have found it good on the whole. Um, and that, to me, is, I think, is besides being tremendously relatable, is is a good way to like uh, start this off, because uh, what is... Uh, interesting that there is a a multi-book, multi-volume approach. And indeed, Tolkien did talk about the books, not as books, um, not as Fellowship of the Ring as a book in itself, but as a volume of a greater whole, which is uh, revealing in some ways. Um, But it's a good way to kind of see the seriousness with which he was treating this source material um, and the way in which he was looking at this more in line with the sort of older novels um, that had had broadly gone out of fashion um by the time the 1940s roll around but you know i'm, I'm thinking of more of the the sort of classic epics um you know m- one of my favorite books like war and peace is done up like this um Les Mis is also famously done up like this lots and lots of books anyways 
All of that said. Uh, so Fellowship of the Ring um, is broken up into two and a sort of half-ish books. Uh, the first is the prologue, um, and the prologue is not like the prologue in the movies because it's so much more annoying. Um, it introduces the readers who Tolkien sort of assumes are already familiar with the concept of hobbits thanks to the book, The Hobbit. Um to the kind of background history of the hobbits that isn't necessarily treated with in the hobbit the book um, and let's see how many times i can say hobbit in this sentence um and it also talks about pipeweed um and um a lot of that pipeweed chat uh, was actually cut from a, a speech of sorts that mary gives in the books at isengard after the flooding of isengard um and he just spoke too long and it had to be cut and moved to the prologue and this also is one of the points at which uh the idea of lord of the rings being a true history set out in a book uh is introduced for the first time book one then a fellowship is uh bilbo's birthday to flight to the ford as manu said um and this is really the book that focuses on the kind of small world of the hobbits and what life is like out in the very very far west um, book two is Rivendell to the breaking of the fellowship. Um, and I actually feel like I need to correct a common misconception here. The breaking of the fellowship is not Boromir's death. It's Frodo choosing to leave the fellowship. Um, I, I feel like that kind of gets maybe muddled up sometimes. And, and, you know, maybe that is partially because of where it occurs in the film. Um, in the book, Boromir doesn't die until the very start of two towers um or also uh book three um and so therefore <laughs> book three follows boromir's death at parth galen to uh the uh arrival of um aragorn and eomer and theoden and gandalf at isengard after the battle of helm's deep um or the battle of the hornburg as it is in the books um, and this is the book that really sort of starts to deal with like the lay politics and weaknesses of men um and also simultaneously like the first early kind of seedlings of the coalition building among the kingdoms of men um, and their pals um, that will later lead to the greater battles at the Battle of the Pelennor Fields and the Battle of the Black Gate. Book four of, um, oh, and it's also worth noting, sorry, um, I realize this is not something that is intuitive. Uh, book three almost exclusively deals with the three hunters, which is Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, um, and briefly with Merry and Pippin, and almost not at all with Sam and Frodo outside of some mentions of them. Um, book four then is the story as as it concerns Sam and Frodo. And that begins with the taming of Gollum um, and then ends with Gollum taking... Um, oh my God, my brain. Holy shit. Um, hang on. Book four starts with Frodo and Sam meeting Gollum and the taming of Gollum, or the taming of Smeagol, and ends with Frodo being taken by the orcs at Shelob's lair. So it already gets through into Tower Shelob's lair and ends with Frodo being taken. And this book really starts to build up the this idea, this theme of like the the um, perseverance of the hobbits, this like innate sort of strength. Um, and also, um, as I feel compelled to note, um, but I will not mention any names. Um, this is also the book in which we learn that not all of the men are as fucked up as they seem. Um, there are some good men out there. It's the, the not all men book. Um, and that's capital M men. And then we get to Return of the King. Um, and book five uh, begins with Pippin and Gandalf arriving in Minas Tirith um, and uh, ends at the start of the Battle at the Black Gate. 
um, and this is really the apocalypse book. This is the catastrophe in Tolkien's new catastrophe. And book six, uh, the very, very last book, is uh, Carathungal to the Grey Havens with pit stops in Minas Tirith, Rohan, Isengard, and of course, the scouring of the Shire. And this is the book that sets out uh, basically the new dawn. And then, because there's not enough pages in these fucking books, I think we get to like 1500 by the end. There are also the appendices, of which there are six. And I'm going to run through this super, super, super quick, but I will try and put up like a Google Doc at some point uh, with... Uh, a better outline and summary of what goes on in each of the appendices. But Appendix A is the genealogies of like the important men and dwarves. So this deals with like Gimli's family. I don't know why it started with Gimli. It starts with Gimli's family. It does not, um, but it includes Gimli's family. It also does um, Aragorn's family and the heirs of Isildur and Elendil. It does the House of Earl, which is Theoden, Amor, and Eowyn's family. It does the House of the Stewards. Uh, it does some other folk who aren't necessarily relevant, whatever. Uh, Appendix B then goes into the background histories. So these are things that Tolkien wanted to include or references in the actual text of The Lord of the Rings, but couldn't find a place narratively to fit them in. Um, this includes, importantly for this episode, the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, uh, which is where the bulk of the romance as like enumerated in the films is taken from. C is Hobbit Family Trees, which is like, you just don't need to read it, but the names are delightful, so definitely do it at one point. They are just really sweet, fun little names. Uh, D is the Calendars, which we talked about at the very, very start of this podcast way back when. Um, and so it's the Shire Reckoning, the King's Reckoning, and the Steward's Reckoning. You really don't need this unless you have brain poisoning like I do. Uh, e is the writing systems, because lest we forget, uh, Tolkien is a linguist and really, really cares about them. And then F is uh, more on languages. And this is, again, where this idea of the book in translation and the the, the written, uh, the original written language of the books having not been English is uh, explained in further detail. And that is it. That is all 1,600 pages of The Lord of the Rings. And while Fellowship closely hews to the text as laid out, the way the latter two, I'm using books here to refer to the Two Towers and Return of the King and not the individual books, the way they are organized mean you aren't aware of what else is going on in Middle-earth like you do in the movies. Aragorn's narrative, or the Three Hunters narrative thread, is presented to us basically without knowing what Frodo and Sam are doing. And in that way, the structure does mirror the narrative. They let Frodo and Sam go and now had to trust and hope that they would succeed with very little word if and when they might make it to Mordor. This also means when characters meet up later, often after major events, we have one party explaining to others what exactly occurred. We will see that in the books with the Council of Elrond and again after the Ents take Isengard in the Two Towers. This feeds into one of the core premises of Lord of the Rings, that it is a story about stories. Not only are things happening off-page in the wider world, but the way we keep those things alive and make sure they get passed on is by communicating them to each other. Cinema usually allows the storytellers to tell the story as it happens. We see Gandalf's escape from Isengard, we see the last march of the Ents, and I think this definitely makes sense, especially when you consider these really are meant to be blockbusters, more or less but it's always worth examining how the story can utilize different mediums to its advantage. I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we get to the later parts of the story where Frodo and Sam are separated from the rest, but felt it was worth to dump it all on you now, so it kind of sets the stage for how the narrative spins out from here.
It's still night, and the lad's Eurotrip prepares to bed down for the evening, under the watchful eyes of the trolls, now turned to stone, that once threatened Bilbo. Lovely. Frodo's condition worsens. Cue up the mini hospital drama as Aragorn's healer instincts kick in to overdrive, and Sam Gamgee, king of the gardeners, goes digging through the dirt to find an invasive weed that Aragorn insists will help ease Frodo's suffering. What's this? A ranger caught off his guard? Liv Tyler, for you, I would be anything. Which, now that I think about it, seems to be sort of the underlying logic of movie Aragorn's entire character. Maybe he is more relatable than I thought. Nevertheless, the really important part of this is that Frodo is injured. Badly. He blew through too much of the Witch King's stash, and is now so deep in a K-hole he fancies himself a three-foot-tall fantastical creature who needs to be saved by tall, beautiful elves. Poor buddy, we've all been there. Firstly, Liv Tyler arrives like Keats' La Belle Dame Sans Merci, and you can thank the world for my beautiful French pronunciation there, as she dismounts from an ethereal white stallion and stepping out of the blinding light into the amazement of a feverish Frodo. So begins one of the most fun sequences of this movie, pure cinematic chaos, the high fantasy fast and furious car chase we didn't know we needed. We wheel across chalky, sparse forests with just the barest hint of Mountain Haven in the background, while the full might of the nine Nazgul bear down upon us, spookier now for the addition of daylight and horses. It was as I spent 30 minutes trying to write a white Bronco chase joke here and failed desperately, realizing that I know almost nothing about the OJ case, that I first realized I might actually be a Zoomer. Generational politics just hit me like a freight train. Anyways, the whipping, billowing capes of the Nazgul add to the sense of frantic, erratic movement during this chase, and Liv Tyler desperately clutching a dying Frodo, who really does look primed to fall off the horse at any minute, raises the stakes to frightening heights. This isn't the most spectacular scenery we've ever seen. By all accounts, it's actually some of the most visually boring, yet that works in its favor. This isn't an environment where things are supposed to happen, yet happen they do, and to the possible detriment of the entire world. Some brilliant helicopter shots give way to the horses, or more accurately, one horse, splashing through a wide, shallow burn, as Arwen and Frodo finally, finally, make it to the shelter of the Vale of Enladris. At last, we are given our first gaslight, gatekeep, girl boss moment of the series. If you want him, come and claim him. This shallow creek proves too much for the Nine, until they rear up, ready to call Arwen's bluff. But praise Arrow. These elves are more than just bimbos. They're magic bimbos. Bimbos, maybe? Circle back to me on that one. Arwen the Waterbender fiercely mutters elvish into the air, and one of the keenest, most visually impressive magic visuals unfolds before our eyes. Water horses, no, not Nessie, actual horses, not so different to the ones that adorn the Trevi Fountain, since I now need to redeem myself with a highbrow reference, gallop down the river's winding route, instantly TPKing the nine. Have these guys got an armor class of zero? Damn, dude. Job done? No, job not done. Job emphatically not done. Though we've made it to safety, or at least to the illusion of it, poor Frodo's heart has given out. It's time for our protagonist to die valiantly, just one-sixth of the way into the story. The rest, the ring falling to Sauron, the rise of eternal darkness from the east, and the five books of grimdark misery we'll cover next week. For now, F's in the chat for Frodo. What grace is given me. Let it pass to him. Let him be spared. Save him. 
So today we want to start by discussing Arwen Undomiel, uh, as played by Liv Tyler, and Undomiel, which I hope I'm saying right, uh, translates to Even Star. Um, her name also translates to Noble Maiden in Cinderin, and she is the daughter of Alrond and Celebrian. Um, I again hope I'm saying that right. Um, she would end up, you know, following the end of the story, being queen to Aragorn for 122 years. And she is often described and as played by Liv Tyler as extremely beautiful. And I am very keenly aware that we are talking about this woman character by talking about her male relations and physical appearance, which, you know, not great. Um, And I'm totally Uh, fine with that by contrast, because that is how she's set up in the books. And it sucks, but at least they've committed to the sucking of it. And uh, I wish they would commit to the sucking of women's treatment way more in this film. (laughs) Uh, We'll get there. Trust me, we're going to get there shortly. Um, just a few more facts about her. She was born in the third age of uh, the year two, 241, and she would go on to live 2,900 years. Um, she did spend some time uh, in Lothlorien under Galadriel in her, I don't know how you would say her youth, given that long age span, but, you know, she was there for a while. And the sword she brandishes is Hattafang, which is entirely um, invented for this film's use, and it actually turns up elsewhere, which I didn't realize at first. Yeah, Elrond shakes it around uh, in The Hobbit in one of the coolest, best scenes in The Hobbit, I would say. Um, And I actually do mean it is cool, um, not good for The Hobbit. Um, But I do think this kind of is maybe an indicator that the sword isn't really hers. And maybe she stole it to go out and do some bad girl shit to save her BF. Uh, Who knows? And the horse she rides, the white bronco, which... Um, I had to tell Emily before the podcast, I actually got to watch the O.J. Simpson white Bronco chase live, which I guess firmly cements me as a millennial, just like her not being able to make a joke uh, cements her as a Zoomer. <laughs> um, I, I remember watching it side by side with the 94 NBA finals as the Knicks and the Rockets faced off. So that's just one of those things that's etched into my memory. And I can't believe I never put together a white Bronco joke. Uh, for the segment. So thank you for that. <laughs> but <laughs> that horse is named Asphaloth, uh, which is actually um, a horse from the books. Um, the elf that comes to save uh, Frodo at this point, his name is Glorfindel. And we will get into him later in our Tolkien Tolkien book section. But he, uh, what's it called? It is the same horse that he rides. And the horse itself is more actively involved in the saving of Frodo when we when we get to the book stuff. And uh, just uh, some stuff, uh, you know, this is essentially reading the wiki on Asphaloth, but, um, you know, in Cinderin, that name means sunlight foam, um, which comes from ast, meaning sunlight, and phaloth, meaning foam. Um, And nearly all of the words for foam in both Cinderin and Quenya are used interchangeably for the words like surge, wave, and crest, Um, hence the Cinderin word with the same prefix phalastala, which, you know, is the present tense verb for surging. Um, this points to two alternative interpretations for Asphaloth, meaning one meaning sun surge and the other surge of sunlight. And uh, one thing I like about this, at least thematically speaking, is that, you know, the foam or a surge or wave or crest is kind of what ends up washing away the Nazgul. I don't know if that's an intentional um, tie-in, but I do kind of like that that's, uh, that at least my mind made that connection while I was doing this research. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. It's almost certainly not intentional, because um, as I will uh, explain in slightly more detail uh, in the token Tolkien book section, uh, 
uh, Gorfindel's appearance in this is totally Tolkien flying by the seat of his pants. So this is definitely just like a very nice coincidence, which I like. And so the Sindarin word Valis also means shore. Um, and uh, there's a, a region in Gondor called Balfalis. And the reason I bring this up is because Balfalis is where the Prince of Dol Amroth dwells. And he does not show up in the film, so, which I guess is fine. Uh, but the Prince of Dol Amroth is Imrahil, and he is my number one bitch. So I do want to talk about him because he, he just bangs, he rocks. So we're going to get into the gender politics of this film. Um, and I just want to say it's not because I have like a vendetta against Arwen. Um, she is just the first woman that actually properly shows up for realsies in these films. So unfortunately, she bears the brunt of me being uh, a grumpy motherfucker about this stuff. Um, before I get into the actual grumpiness, I'm also going to give a slightly grumpy disclaimer, which is this. Um, when I watch movies, um, I'm not looking for women characters or any characters really who 100% match my politics. Um that is just like narratively boring. And um, what I am after are characters that are as fully realized as they need to be for the narrative. And that if they do set themselves up to take implicitly political stances, for example, by wielding a sword and joining a war, there is evidence that the wider implications of those choices have been considered. So I'm equally in favor of sword wielding women characters as I am of docile women who sit and embroider through an entire plot. What matters to me is that they're treated firstly as wholly realized characters, and secondly in terms of their relationship to the narrative, and thirdly as whether or not they are icons for women or things that we should be looking up to. Understanding that, um, I'm then interested in how writers approach uh, the inherent politicization of womanhood, because it's almost impossible to ignore the fact that a woman showing up in a story that is almost entirely men does have a political sheen to it. So what I'm interested in is... What are these writers trying to say about women? Uh, what are they saying about women? Um, and if a writer creates a woman character who's only ever shown cooking and cleaning for men through an entire fictional work, are they going to make me content with the fact that that character is doing that by acknowledging, for example, that this woman has some sort of fully realized personality outside of her emotional, social, and economic relationship to men? Similarly, there is every chance I will be disappointed by a woman character who, for example, ticks all the surface-level boxes of empowerment because she might ultimately serve to say worrying things about women or gender generally. My fundamental interest in dealing with women characters um, is making sure that they're treated with the same seriousness and thoughtfulness you would treat your classic white, able-bodied, heterosexual man characters with, and not in having women characters who always embody certain personality traits or plot beats. So... <laughs> that mouthful said, um, I have a brief, um, and in the notes, I do have the word brief italicized and then the word haha written next to it, so brace yourselves. Um, but a brief note on uh, the gender dynamics in these films uh, as I see them. Um, femininity is not treated very well in these films. Um, I, I struggle to articulate this in any other way, but the things that embody traditional femininity, and I don't mean a feminist uh, reimagining of femininity, I mean femininity as it exists in, in the Anglosphere and in, you know, modern capitalist patriarchy, femininity as it exists there is not treated well in these films. And um, for example, Arwen being taken away from what she does in the book, which is embroidering the banner that uh, Aragorn unfurls at the Battle of Pelennor Fields, um, and also her very, very important job as acting of the Lady of Elrond's household, um, 
to give her a sword and make her ride around a bit. Or um, Eowyn's plot in the book turning from her being mad because she's not being treated as she thinks aristocrats should be to her in the movies railing against gender norms, which is totally not done in the books at all. Um, femi- oh, and the other thing, I was just reminded of this the other day. The other thing is in the Two Towers Extended Edition, they have this weirdest shit scene where Eowyn's really bad at cooking, and it's definitely implied that it's because she's not like the other girls and doesn't do girly shit like that, and not because she's obviously an aristocrat who has never had to lift a finger to help herself in her life. Anyways. Uh, yeah, I just <laughs> want to jump in, because I, I recently rewatched the Two Towers Extended Edition, and I don't have the same level of familiarity as I do with those. And when that scene came up, I'm like, Oh, they they did this? Oh, uh, why is this in here? This is like for all the reasons you said bad, but it's just like I I just like absolutely don't get it. It was kind of actually gross and um I don't want to tease out the rest of our podcast, but I'm kind of becoming jokerified against the extended editions of The Two Towers and Return of the King. <laughs> um cuz I have a I have a lot of issues now that I'm spending more time with those as opposed to the theatrical editions. Um, so I just wanted to voice some solidarity with uh, what the fuck at that scene, but Woo-hoo. sorry to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's great. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Um, yeah. And so, and I think this is like, this basically links into like the wider thing, right? Which is that like femininity in these films is only really loud when it's overbalanced by masculinity. So like, Boromir, Aragorn, Sam, Frodo, they're all allowed to cry and kiss one another and hug each other, but that's because they're first and foremost manly men um, doing manly men things. Um, and yes, like that it is true that that is a subversion in some ways of what manliness is. Um, and I'm not going to deny that that's definitely a good thing, like softening up masculinity, allowing for like a, a level of like um, emotionality, like, and, and, and healthy, like, uh, connection with other men is definitely a good thing. But my problem with it is it's not counterposed by an equally helpful or good subversion of femininity. It really is just counterposed by, like, dunking on things that are women related or getting rid of anything that could potentially be seen as feminine. Yeah. And we're, we're going to talk a little bit more on this subject. Um, I do think, you know, in terms of like an economicization of the plot, it kind of makes sense to insert Arwen here. Um, less so maybe for the sword wielding and the horse ride, but maybe those few moments she shares with Aragorn, uh, when he, uh, she finds them in the, in the woods. And you can see that there is some kind of long standing relationship here that they're going to flesh out once we get to Rivendell. So, um, I agree with all of Emily's things. I do get why they're like, oh, this might be a good place to stick Arwen in purely from an adaptation standpoint. Um, But I think there might have been some other solutions that I think Emily might get at for this. Yeah. And so the reason I mentioned the fact that um, Auron wields uh, Arwen's sword in The Hobbit um, is because it's a fucking cool as shit looking scene. I mean, Hugo Evening looks badass in it. Um, and they've got this like brilliant golden armor. It's the armor that he wears at the Battle of the Last Alliance. Um, and it looks cool. And this is obviously like uh, some 15 or so years on from when they were filmed. Uh, the Lord of the Rings films, and Hugo Weaving has still really got it and really got that presence, which is why I believe that not Arwen and not Glorfindel, but Elrond should have been the one that they put on a horse. Put him on a horse, give him a sword, make him look as badass as we're told that he is, and then you can cut down on the like kind of excess or the bloat of having Glorfindel without having to like girl boss Arwen. And so I guess this kind of like 
this kicks open the Pandora's box of my problem with uh, the women. My problem with women generally. No, my problem with the women in these films, um, which is that there's this vision of like empowerment through violence, um, which I don't like for a variety of reasons. Like I'm someone who broadly considers himself a pacifist kind of in, in a limited sense but is also like not a fan of this notion that like the only way women will empower themselves is by doing the same sort of like senseless patriarchal violence that men do um i think that is like a bad model for feminism and a bad model for womanhood um i also think it implies something kind of ugly about what these characters well specifically what arwen is doing in the books um which is that it kind of says that the, that her plot in the books, which I will admit is thin, like like she really doesn't show up that much and she's not doing a huge amount. Um, but whatever it is that she's doing in the books is somehow not significant and somehow not worthy of a strong, empowered woman character. Um, and like I do want to say it is an important criticism of uh, of Tolkien's books that there are definitely not enough women in them um, and that um, Arwen's kind of thin on the ground. However, I don't think the immediate solution to that is to give her a sword. I think there are other ways to flesh out her character without making her into this like Amazon warrior um, that feel helpful uh, in terms of making her a fully realized character Um but don't kind of undercut the 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 sort of like inherent femininity and like womanhood of what she's doing. And I and I know that sounds potentially quite weird and like gender essentialist, but like like we we have to like reckon with the fact that by taking her away from being the lady of the house in in Rivendell, which I should also note is an incredibly important role for aristocrats and is not as like uneven as I think a lot of fantasy films make out. Like being the lady of the house is is genuinely being Number two, in terms of importance, they they take over, they take charge when the men of the house are away. It is some, it is a a, a role of great social and political import. It is not something to be de- devalued so lightly just because it doesn't look like, you know, power suit girl boss. But also the 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 sewing and the embroidering of the 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 banner that is unfurled at the Pelennor Fields by Aragorn is also something significant because it shows that there is um, a way for people to contribute to this creation of or or recreation of this new state in this case Gondor that doesn't involve violence. Um, when Aragorn unfurls the banner, it's it's a banner of the White Tree. Um, it is him saying that he has arrived as the king um, and that Gondor is uh, in the process of being born anew. Um, and I think that is really significant because it says that. While Gondor is both birthed initially and rebirth, horrifying phrase there, uh, through like the crucible of violence and warfare, um, there is also an element of it that is based in peacefulness and arts and, and this, the sort of slow and thoughtful and careful labor of people who are otherwise unrecognized. Um, don't give her a sword. Focus on how fucking difficult it is to embroider. And I say this as someone who's just like taken up embroidering a couple years ago now. Um, it is incredibly difficult. It is incredibly dramatic. Um, and it, it is a worthwhile thing that is worth exploring. Um, it sucks to me that they get rid of that. Um, I also now, having just said all of this, want to caveat this by saying um, I don't think the gender binary is like inherent or movable. I don't think that like things that are now considered feminine and things that are now considered masculine will always be considered or should always be considered feminine or masculine. I think these two terms are descriptive, not prescriptive. And so given in the 1990s that femininity meant X, Y, and Z things on a tick box list and masculinity meant X, Y, and Z things on a tick box list, we need to be understanding and thinking critically about 
what gets subverted or what gets upheld when and why. Um, and then also, um, I think it's important to say that like, uh, it, feminism as a cause not just as like this kind of wishy-washy notion of like upholding women regardless of what they do is like an inherently ideological thing that is um not just about breaking the the sort of like tyranny of the gender binary and the tyranny of patriarchy but about thinking about what those terms mean and whether or not they can be useful going forward so we want to get rid of patriarchy and we want to get rid of the gender binary but do we necessarily want to get rid of femininity do we necessarily want to get rid of masculinity that's not a question we're going to answer in this podcast but i do feel like it's something that's overlooked especially in feminist media criticism and i want to like add that here because it's something i'm going to come back to time and time and time again with arwen with uh aragorn and boromir with King Faramir uh, and his constant crying, and then later with Eowyn. Um, I want to get that in there. Um, but yes, uh, as I kind of said at the top of this, um, it is interesting to me that the the men characters in the, these films can dip into and out of femininity uh, as they like. For example, uh, look at the title of our podcast, whereas the women characters basically can't ever be feminine or do things that are considered feminine without having to immediately overbalance it with committing heinous, well, not heinous acts of violence, but committing acts of violence or being prepared to commit acts of violence. Yeah, when you started putting these notes uh, into the document, this was like a huge eye opener for me because I, you know, I'm a man, I'm a cis man. Um, I never really took stock in the fact that yes, the men are allowed to be fluid in their kind of gender performance, whereas the women very much are not and, you know, definitely skew masculine, at least with Arwen and Eowyn who take, um, you know, the you know, really most of the share of uh, the women roles in this. I know Galadriel is probably the only other one, but uh, she's very brief in her presence for the most part. And it makes me think a lot about, um, I don't have the exact quote on here, um, but Sophie Turner, um, about halfway through the filming of Game of Thrones, had a very astute comment uh, talking about how most guys and even, you know, some women, and again, I don't want to get into gender binary here. Um, there are many genders um, and there probably should be no gender. Uh, but like she talked about how people tend to fawn over characters like Arya Stark or Brienne of Tarth or Daenerys, uh, characters described as warriors or assassins or conquerors, which are traditionally kind of male coded roles. Um, but, uh, one thing she expressed in her love for, you know, working as, uh, Sansa Stark in that show was that, uh, characters like Cersei Lannister or Sansa or Marjorie Tyrell are completely acting within the realm of femininity. And you talk about embroidery. Um, a key part for all these characters is the fact that, yes, you know, they do their needlework, um, you know, they create dresses and all that, but how they can express power um, or, you know, various other themes related to the story through those kind of feminine methods um, are very much, you know, kind of championed and appreciated. And um, I'm not going to say that George Martin is some great feminist or anything. Um, I think he has his ups and downs, though I think he generally writes women pretty well. Um, and I think he does it better than the show ended up depicting in the end. Uh, but he was writing most of these stories at the same exact time that, you know, Philippa Boyens and Fran Walsh and Peter Jackson were putting together these movies. Um, so it's not like a issue of, you know, someone was doing this, you know, 30 years down the road and has a slightly better view on this. Um, kind of stepping back, though, I think, you know, we sometimes joke about girl boss feminism on here, or at least, you know, use that phrase in a somewhat jokey way. But I think the more dire real world descriptor is imperial feminism and how that's absolutely, absolutely destroyed how the West perceives women leaders. 
We praise them for being belligerent, like the Thatchers and Clintons of the world. We're supposed to be excited when a woman heads the CIA. Uh, None of these analyses actually care to look at who was hurt by the U.S. or the U.K. or their intelligence services or proxies. Uh, Building a world based on justice means we have to realize that making sure our oppressors look like us is not really a goal we want, especially because the victims still end up generally looking the same, uh, whether it's, you know, other women, people of color, um, you know, gender nonconforming or non-binary persons. So um, I think it's very important. And I think it's a very timely thing to talk about because um, at least here in the U.S., um, we put a lot of stock in the fact, oh, this is a woman candidate. So that means she is inherently better for X, Y, Z reasons. But we're not really interrogating whether are we just putting them in a position of power to oppress the same exact people who are suffering, who tend to be from marginalized identities. And that's kind of why, you know, we kind of hit this, you know, girl boss, gatekeep, gaslight brand of feminism that has kind of taken root, not just politically and in our culture, but also in how we talk about uh, fiction and women in these fictional stories. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Like, and I think that is like a really, really, really brilliant way of uh, of articulating that. And I think, um, I also feel like compelled to to say right now, like, um, uh, so we're recording this on the fifteenth of December, and uh, like the 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 feminist scholar uh, and writer Bell Hooks died today. Um, which is like mm-hmm. something I can't think about too much because I will definitely start crying. But you know, she's someone who who's had a tremendous impact on on how I think um about uh you know myself and my politics um and and the the, the politics of women and women and feminism um, and I think one of the the sort of important elements of of a lot of her writing to me is this notion of uh, not hating things that are soft or feminine um, and she talks about how um, after her experience in uh, the second wave feminist movement she had to kind of had to have a come to Jesus moment with herself about whether or not she hated the idea of love. Um, because there was, um, particularly in 19, the 1970s, there was this kind of anti-love movement and the feminist movement that basically saw any, any sort of, um, show of emotionality that was like typically deemed feminism to be something that was actually, you know, acting against the cause. And the more you acted like a woman, uh, the, the more you hurt women overall. Um, and this is a thread, um, that is picked up by the trans scholar Julia Serrano in her incredible book, uh, Whipping Girl, which I recommend to absolutely everybody all the time. Read it. Um, like it will take you. Uh, a lot of time um, to to get through because it is quite dense, but is a life changing book. Um, but she talks about the fact that like this this sort of like ongoing kind of woman led degradation of things that are considered feminine is actually bad for all of us. Um, and this isn't, I don't think, an example that she gives in. In the book, but it's something that I think is like definitely relevant <laughs> given that we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but this notion that like, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying that like women should be barefoot and pregnant all the time and that that is somehow like a feminist thing. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is like there is a turn to, to treating, um, caring and motherhood and uh like communal care um especially like in the context of like this chat over like emotional labor and i don't need to listen to my friends because that's emotional labor and i don't owe them that um there is a turn to to treating um human interaction as something that is inherently weak and inherently bad and and not feminist um and instead of lifting women up and making us more equal with men because you know we're acting like men now and men don't do this for their pals and men don't take care of their kids and men don't take care of their community what it does is it empowers people empowers people empower enables people in power to do things like 
cut care, um, a cut support for care and carers. Um, it, it enables people to justify, uh, for example, uh, uh, neoliberalist, neoliberal capitalist ideology, which basically says the state shouldn't exist at all, um, and you should have to do everything yourself. Um, it enables uh, an overall degradation of quality of life, not just for women, but but for everybody, um, on the basis that it is uh, empowering women. And the fucking oh my god, is she the Tennessee uh, Attorney General who's currently challenging Roe in? Uh, in the Supreme Court, Roe Ro versus Wade in the Supreme Court for for the UK listeners um, or non-US listeners, uh, is had this absolutely mind-numbingly evil interview where she talks about how um, she's against abortion rights um, and she's against uh, the existence of Planned Parenthood um, on the basis of women's empowerment um, because she says, you know, something along the lines of like um, women aren't empowered when they are required to rely on the state. Uh, for uh, these things and women should be out there, you know, managing things for themselves. And that is intimately and directly linked to this kind of girl boss feminism and is also intimately and directly linked to this imperial feminism, this, this, this feminism that imagines womanhood as, as violent, as bad as masculinity, um, and as able to pick up a gun and go invade Afghanistan because, you know, women should also be drafted. The problem isn't that the draft exists. The problem is that women aren't also drafted. Um, and women should be able to lead the CIA or women should be allowed to be five-star generals and commit horrible, horrible acts of violence. And to justify this, we're going to give you characters like Arwen who justify the fact that they are uh, worth something to Aragorn, this cool man character, because they're able to pick up swords and, you know, stare down the nine Nazgul, something that no other characters are really able to do um and it just i just find it absolutely deeply tremendously frustrating not least because it actually ends up giving you less complete and less realized characters than the women characters that tolkien writes in the books and i cannot stress this enough tolkien is not a feminist hero he has actually got a really bad track record on writing women it's just these films somehow manage to do worse <laughs> yeah it's not kind of, it's not unlike the orc and uh urukai discussion we had last time out where it's one of the things where um one of the things that they really had space to improve on uh from tolkien's work and they seem to just make it worse um i don't think they necessarily doubled down on anything tolkien had laid out like we you know kind of laid out with some of the urukai stuff um but um it's definitely a space where um in retrospect uh it obviously, it reflects a very specific, narrow, third-wave feminist kind of look at um, the role of women and women in power. Um, and I think, you know, it hurts. It, it hurts now, especially looking back at it. One thing, if you're interested in imperial feminism, is a book that really had a tremendous effect on me was Disposable Domestics, uh, which is about, um, it's by uh, Grace Chang, and it's about um, immigrant women workers across the world and how they're specifically affected by U.S. imperialism. And it's usually women who are coming over here to serve in uh, traditional feminine-coded roles, like their doulas or midwives or nurses um, from countries like Philippines or South Africa or uh, you know places we tend to imperil Latin America, maybe chiefly amongst them in the Middle East. Um, and I think that's just an eye-opening book for people to look at, uh, just because when we talk about, hey, there's going to be a new CIA lady who's going to be you know leading the drone strikes. Um, 
who actually suffers and what who that benefits really needs to be examined beyond this very surface level gender aesthetic and really um you know, you really have to look at the consequences of it. And um, I think that's a great book for people to check out. It definitely had a profound effect and pivoted some of my thinking um, on these kind of topics. Yeah, um, like it, that is, I, I'm going to second that recommendation because it is absolutely so brilliant. And I think it is one of these things that like Anglosphere feminists ignore consistently to the detriment of all of us. And like, you know, those of us on the political left, but all of us, we cannot afford to ignore this sort of stuff just because seeing like the fucking Marvel lineup of all of the women uh, who are getting paid less than their male co-stars who are wearing like clothing that is just obviously meant to make them look hot and not comfortable and that makes us feel good but actually thinking seriously about how to like liberate and emancipate women doesn't and uh, you know in spite of all that or not in spite of but um i do want to add and i think we both are kind of on this part is that Liv tyler for her sake really does her part well um, she brings that ethereal sense of the elves to the character, especially as they're shot, um, and in terms of telling a story through cinema. I think all of that is generally well executed. I, I still remember my first time seeing this movie, and it was literally like, hey, that's Liv Tyler. Um, and, you know, at the time in, you know, the late 90s, she was mostly known for um, her role in Armageddon. And, you know, again, relationship to a man mostly known as steven tyler's daughter more or less um so i you know i i do want to say that i don't think a lot of this is at lip tyler's feet i think the material she's given she executes uh pretty you know flawlessly for the most part and i think um you know i kind of mentioned earlier that part of this was mostly just um to kind of get a little bit of her and aragorn uh together uh, before they have a little more meteor and direct interaction in Rivendell, we kind of see them tease out that relationship here. And I think that's possibly the reasoning behind choosing um, Arwen to come here and save Frodo over Elrond or introducing a Glorfindel character. Yeah, um, I, I will. I, I think I'm going to park some of the rest of this point that I'm about to make for, for later. Um, but th- this bit, the the stupid, what's this, a ranger caught off his guard bit, um, drives me nuts because that in a nutshell is exactly the point of Eowyn's arc, as in that is what she's moving away from. That sort of like um, unhelpful and like slightly dangerous conflation of violence and love and sex is like the thing that eventually drives Ao into the brink um, and the thing that she has to come back from before she can like lead a healthy and successful and happy happy a like triple underline and bold happy there life um and so it does make me laugh that they're like yeah fuck it we'll put it in who cares <laughs> and you know a minor moment uh in these scenes uh that i really do like is that when arwen shows up um, and they're trying to saddle the horse and talk about the threat that's out there. Uh, we see Aragorn and Arwen speaking in Elvish, and the hobbits are all like not understanding anything that's being said, and they all look very concerned. Um, I really love this line de- delivery from Billy Boyd. He's like wondering, what are they saying? Uh, but just like both the concern and fear in Pippin's eyes is just, you know, it's great. It's, uh, it, 
you know, it, it's like you were saying how book one is really about the small world of the hobbits. And when we step into book two, it's, you know, kind of stepping into the larger world, the world of men and elves. And you really get that sense that, oh, I mean, obviously, the hobbits are a bit out of their water. They're being chased by nine specters of ancient kings. Um, They can't do much about that. But just having that like one line reading and that one look in Billy Boyd's face really just sounds like so much is happening that's going way up you know, above their heads that they can't even begin to fathom. Yeah, it's a huge mood. <laughs> <laughs> so um, another thing we want to highlight about these scenes and something that the movies have kind of alluded to is the fact that uh, all nine Nazgul kind of attack Frodo at this time, especially on Arwen's Midnight Ride. Um, we've seen them in smaller groups uh, so far. Um, there were like a couple in the Shire. There were about four in Bree. Um, and then about, I think, five on Weathertop. And, you know, Arwen specifically calls out, you know, five Nazgul are, you know, chasing you where the other four are. I do not know. Um, and that kind of is the first hint that maybe the nine together symbolize something even more menacing than uh, the Nazgul, um, what's it called, uh, might symbolize individually, even though they are a terrifying presence. And this also gives me a chance to kind of circle back to uh, a little factoid I missed earlier. Um, in the earlier parts in the Shire, when the Nazgul are asking after Frodo and uh, Bag End, uh, that like kind of high pitched whispering voice that's actually done by Andy Serkis, who <laughs> we all know uh, did Gollum. So I just like to point out that um, you know he got he probably got a little extra money for his voice acting uh, by uh, doing the Nazgul stuff. And uh, another thing I want to mention, or not, uh, but just basically uh, when the flood sweeps away. Um, the riders here, we basically don't see them again uh, through fellowship, and they kind of pop up about a third of the way through um, two towers after this point. Um, Emily will kind of describe what happened to them, but me using my video game mind, um, I just basically think, oh, they were killed, and they have to go respawn in Mordor <laughs> and basically start all over again. Um, yeah, so I, I was trying to figure out where they go. I assume they go to Isengard, Um I, unless I am like totally mistaken, I don't actually think they explain where they go in the books. Um, I assume they go first to Isengard, um, and not all the way back to Angmar, which they could do. They well could go back to Angmar, but we don't know. Um, if you play Lord of the Rings online, which fleshes out this lore really, really excitingly, uh, they just, uh, fucking annoy your player character loads. But I assume Tolkien was not imagining an MMO when he was writing this. So the answer is who knows? Yeah, I think um, I I think in reading the Council of Elrond chapter, someone made a comment that um, when they got washed away, they probably lost their cloaks and horses, and they don't really have like a physical presence or being in the same way, um, and that they would have to regroup. Uh, whether that's going to you know Angmar, or Isengard, back to Minas Morgul, what that means, we don't know. Um, but we do kind of not really feel their presence again in these movies. Um, there are like hints that, you know, they might, you know, be seen on the fell beast or felt at least their presence, um, as the fellowship heads south from Rivendell. Um, but we don't really get any clarification on that. And then geographically speaking, um, where, um, this whole flooding happens is, uh, c called the Ford of Brunin. This is the literal flight to the Ford. It's the Ford of Brunin or Bruinen. Uh, I, I will let Emily pronounce it correctly here in a second. And it's basically, the crossing over the River Bruin, and, or the Loudwater as it's known, on the Great East Road. 
Yeah, um, I'm also definitely not going to pronounce this correctly because I look at that and see French. Um, and actually, because I was looking at that and seeing French, um, I went and uh, double checked in the OED uh, what the so so the French word, which is why I'm bringing up French. The French word for noise is bruit, uh, b-r-u-i-t, um, and uh, Tolkien historically tries to avoid using French terms because he hates French. Um, and I was laughing because I was like, hang on, that's a French word. Uh, how could you not get a German alternative? Um, and so I went running over to the OED because I was like, all right, let's 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 see if this is actually uh, Tolkien screwing up or if I'm getting bamboozled. Um, there is a Middle English term, brute, uh, you know, kind of kind of like the term brute, uh, which does broadly mean like noise or like chaos, um, which is almost certainly what Tolkien was aiming for when he named this. But that word comes from Latin. It's a Latinate word um, and not a Germanic word, which means Tolkien is still owned. Uh, and so basically it's totally fine to be like Brennan, uh, which is closer to the French pronunciation. Uh, France won Tolkien nil. Um, and the Brennan, Brunin, whatever, um, it's water flowing down from the Misty Mountains, uh, which is uh, a location that, uh, we, I mean, technically Moria and all that is part of the Misty Mountains chain, but uh, gets definitely a little more heavy focus when we get to the Hobbit films. Um, it's, you know, near Rivendell. This is basically our entry point uh, and the next stop on our podcast and in the movie is Rivendell itself, where Frodo recovers. Um, this scene, um, we're going to, you know, we have other stuff to talk about in the Tolkien, Tolkien book section. So uh, I just want to get this part out here that um, at this point in the books, uh, Frodo basically rides the horse alone. Asphaloth basically knows where he's going, what he's doing. Um, whereas, again, you know, they inserted Arwen here to be his guardian. And uh, along those lines, Arwen, as we see um, in the films, is the one who casts, you know, the flood spell that wipes away the Nazgul. In the text, it's really a combination of Elrond and Gandalf and possibly Glorfindel. Um, Gandalf's the one who added kind of the horse veneer to it um, because he's a fucking show off. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so it's a kind of a different uh, impact. And again, it's giving Arwen's a little more um, martial presence for you know, as we argue for the worst, but, you know, people can take it different ways. Yeah. And I think it's also one of the, um, so I, I think it is significant that they take it down from like a three, three man, uh, exploit in the books to a one woman thing in the films, because, um, magic is not really the done thing in the legendary. I'm like, there, there is sort of magic, but it's not, it's not a Harry Potter book um magic we really rarely ever see um and like corporeal magic like that um we especially don't see so when it is done in the books it it does take three people to to really pull off correctly um and in the films where they're a bit more magically oriented uh it can only be a one one person thing because there is just a tad bit more magic in the universe here so from there we'll transition into our film craft portion of this episode and um, I just want to talk a little bit about how they present Frodo and Arwen's arrival. Um, they do a great effect on Frodo, I assume, through context to really, like, punch up the blueness of his eyes as he's slowly slipping away into the Twilight world. And then the arrival of Arwen is just something that's kind of stuck with me from this film specifically. Um, her entrance as kind of a blinding, uh, you know, blindingly, you know, bright white light. Um, with her voice kind of appearing off the screen, it again kind of um, reminds me that elves are a little bit like, you know, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. 
Um, and, you know, if that crude matter ends up being Liv Tyler, I mean, all more power to you. <laughs> um, but it, but definitely between that, just kind of that, you know, white burst of light and the fact that her voice is almost coming off screen, it's not directly just emanating from Liv Tyler's mouth. It gives that kind of ethereal, um, I don't know, all-encompassing feel uh, to, uh, you know, the elves and Arwen here specifically. And I really like how, um, as Arwen approaches, they do cut to a shot of Frodo, and you see kind of the white light reflecting off his face, and it juxtaposes itself against the shot we talked about back in the Riddles in the Dark episode, where we saw the text on the one ring uh, reflected on Frodo's face. So in that shot uh, back then, it was kind of like the darkness of the world reflected off Frodo's face, and that in this shot, we kind of get the light of the world reflected off his face and kind of how those two are kind of in balance or, you know, kind of competing against each other and how Frodo's kind of in the middle of all that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't necessarily have a, like a nice, uh, cinematographic take on that, but there are two things this bit reminds me of. One I mentioned in the recap, which is, uh, Keats's poem, uh, La Belle Dame Saint Merci. Um, and I'm gonna, I, I have, like, I do speak French, so me pronouncing it like this is just absolutely ridiculous. And I do feel shame, so don't, don't, don't worry about it there. Um, but there's uh, a couple lines in the poem that I want to. Uh, bring in here um, and they're from a whole bunch of different stanzas so I'm very very sorry to like poetry scholars or people who are capable of reading poetry for absolutely butchering how poems are meant to be written but nevertheless the lines are these um, oh what can ail thee knight at arms alone and palely loitering that's from the first stanza the second stanza is oh what can ail thee knight at arms so haggard and so woe be gone and I think that is very obviously Frodo um, and then the third and fourth stanzas are this I see a lily on thy brow, with anguish moist and fever dew, and on thy cheeks a fading rose, fast withereth too. I met a lady in the meads, full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild. And that is obviously Arwen. Um, And the actual content of the poem has almost nothing to do with uh, the actual plot here but i do think it is close enough and there is a there's sort of like an ongoing romantic influence to these films that it is worth pointing out and, and obviously this is one of the better known of all of keats's poems and um, but then there's also a, a rococo painting um from uh who is he french guy named Fragonard. there's your fucking shitty french pronunciation um if you look it up it's called the swing um you almost certainly have seen it before um but is this beautiful rococo painting of a woman in uh her lovely 18th century gown with all of the frills and bows and she's in this like pink but she's lit from the side so she's almost entirely white she like matches the kind of white balance point of the scene and everything else around her is dark greens it's not like super super in your face aggressive bright greens it's like these kind of dark almost like wet rainforesty type greens um, and she stands out so brilliantly against it is like there's a shaft of light on it and if you look at that painting and then you watch this entrance is like a very much a one-to-one in, in terms of like what the lighting is doing and what the ca- color palette is doing. Um, and I'll put that up on our Instagram to <laughs> help illustrate that because I'm certain that my words did not do that justice. But I think this is also one of the first kind of scenes where we start to see, see the like fine art influence through these films. Um, and as we go, I will um, make uh, make an effort to kind of link them on our Instagram so you can see the the artsy influences that I think are quite fun. Yes, at Instagram at my bro, my cat, my pod. Um, and I did, uh, before we get to the actual flight to the Fords, I did want to mention that 
Um, the effect of her voice kind of not emanating from her mouth, but kind of being all encompassing and coming in like in surround sound for more or less a better word is a um, technique they'll echo a couple times, uh, including in just a few minutes uh, when she calls the flood, you kind of get the same kind of sound mixing there with her voice kind of emanating from all corners. And we'll also see a little bit of that with Galadriel, although it's played differently for both thematic and narrative reasons. So let's get to the actual Flight to the Fords, or as I like to call Arwen's Midnight Ride, because (laughs) in my opinion, it is one of the most tremendous action sequences or set pieces. And it's one of the few that's less about special effects or fantastical imagery. And it's just straight up horse riding and landscapes. Um, And, you know, it does... It does some great work because there's these establishing shots of just Arwen riding through the country and they have a very kinetic feel because she's blazing away on her horse. But there's also these great like helicopter and Jeep shots throughout um, that basically, you know, kind of add uh, momentum to the camera. So it just kind of ratchets up the speed even quicker. And then we start seeing um, her horse start running through the trees and then we start getting more cuts. And as we get more cuts, as we see through the trees, we start seeing the black shapes of the Nazgul uh, showing up, not in clear view and not really, you know, lingering on them. But we start seeing, oh, there's shadows, you know, there's wraiths uh, intermixed between all this. And this is when we start seeing that, um, you know, the path that Arwen is taking, there's a lot of curves, twists, uh, bending around roots, changing routes because, you know, a Nazgul is kind of getting on her way. And it really does create a sense of both urgency, urgency and heightened danger. Uh, and it just, it's just one of the most tremendously shot, um, practical scenes in the entire, um, film trilogy. Yeah, absolutely. And if you watch the behind the scenes of this, it seems also like it must have been an absolute nightmare for Liv Tyler to film because um, they really do beat the hell out of her on that mechanical horse. They've got her riding. Um, and it's just fun to watch generally because it is like interesting how much finagling they had to do to get it right. And But it also does make you feel a huge amount of sympathy with her because it looks painful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... I think one shot that specifically stands up is when they pan back out for a helicopter shot and you see Arwen in the middle with Frodo on her horse and then all nine Nazgul maybe like five or six yards behind her um, in an open landscape. And it's one of those shots that's just both beautiful and brilliant. And it almost makes my heart drop because, you know, I realize I'm watching a movie. I know none of this stuff is real, but it's just one of those things that's so beautifully realized um, that you're just like completely in it in the moment. And um, they kind of intercut a lot of these, you know, kind of long shots or helicopter shots with a bunch of close ups, you know, whether it's on Frodo's face and makeup, which is done beautifully here because he's starting to get this kind of like gangrene look around his mouth. Um, His eyes are like really unable to focus much beyond everything. They're kind of sunk into his face. Um, They really just kind of went all out. This this scene is a massive flex to me. Um, Just everything about it is great. We see shots of the horses with their mouth foaming. Um, we see the Nazgul mostly through like outstretched gauntlets trying to reach and grab Frodo off of Arwen's um, horse. And it actually, um, I mentioned a couple episodes ago, or actually last episode, that Isengard reminded me of a part from Princess Mononoke, the Iron Town. And well, I got another Princess Mononoke set of vibes here um, because there's a sequence in which Prince Ashitaka is being chased by two samurai and they are on black horses and their samurai armor is pretty, it's a dark blue, but it kind of comes off as black. And then, you know, they're chasing uh, Prince Ashitaka and it's very much staged and 
not film, but, you know, it very much has the same kind of kinetic energy and like the kind of larger than life set piece feel as, um, you know, this, this sequence does. Yeah, no, for real. Um, and I think that like, I think, as you say, this, the scene is a massive flex. Um, and it makes me think of something, uh, uh so a couple years ago now, I'm, I can't keep track of time anymore thanks to the pandemic but a couple years ago now in the before times um i went and saw um a production of um all my sons at the uh dundee rep theater which is scotland's only full-time rep theater is a brilliant theater um if you are if for some reason ever in dundee um you should go make a make a beeline to see them because they are brilliant but they did a production of all my sons um, and i sat in the the audience um and was baffled for like the first maybe hour and a half of it because they'd set the set itself on these milk crates and i was like what what have they done there why have they done these milk crates that is the weirdest thing no other part of the set looks like it was kind of like cobbled together like this everything else looks brilliant they've obviously gone in like gone for like a super realistic take on it on like on set design okay what the hell are these milk crates for and i spent the whole play stressing about what these milk crates were for and in the very end they have a scene with rain and water hitting the milk crates makes it sound like a thunderstorm they're dropping water on the stage it's actual water but the milk crates amplify the sound so in this theater it's not a small theater but it's it's also not a large theater it like the the sound of the rain drops hitting the milk crates just bounces off every single surface. It's so loud. It's so authentic. It makes the the rainstorm sound I- even more significant than they could have possibly managed in a in a theater like that. And throughout the rest of the scene, as you're kind of dealing with the aftermath of the scene that happens in the thunderstorm, you're still hearing the water droplets dropping from every single hole and nook and cranny in those milk crates. And that's why they've done it. They waited that whole time they sacrificed certain things certain like elements of realism in the rest of the play so that they could have that one absolutely brilliant moment with that that functional bit of set and that to me is what the nazgul costumes are because to be honest they don't look the the black robes they're fine they're black robes they're wearing black robes they don't look super great they're not super dynamic and there are a couple shots in the two towers which i noticed when i was re-watching last night where they actually look kind of cheaply made um which is a huge contrast to the rest of the costumes in the film but when you watch those nazgul robes whip through the air here as they're riding it just makes the whole thing worth it because it's so dynamic it's so chaotic it really lends itself to this this kind of horrifying movement that they've got going on this like black they literally become this black cloud that's threatening to envelop uh arwen and frodo and it's just absolutely flawless and that is one of the moments in these films where i'm like oh my god fuck yes they've really thought about what they're doing here and uh, another thing I'm just uh, realizing, another thing that kind of stands out to me from this little set piece is there is a point where Arwen uh, kind of runs too close to a tree branch and gets a little scratch on her face. Um, and one thing we're going to uh, explore probably more in later episodes is the fact that um, the films take, um, you know, kind of do this adaptation choice where um, Arwen kind of passes some of her elfish grace onto Frodo. Um, so that he could survive his wounds, complete this journey, whatever. Um, it is in part helps make Arwen a little more mortal. I know it kind of plays weird because, you know, a lot of things are happening here. Um, but I do like just the symbolism of this little slash across her cheek. Um, because it kind of is, 
maybe a fall from grace or at least showing that that she's getting muddled up in the wars of men um so it kind of is just a quick little shot that might speak to all the stuff that's going to happen with the way that Arwen and Frodo are kind of tied up together or their fates are linked um as Elrond will say in I believe the return of the king or something like that um there isn't as much to discuss about with the score here um we do get a little bit of um, a light motif that'll come up with uh, Rivendell when Arwen shows up, but we'll maybe save it for that episode. Um, but we do get the Nazgul theme just ripping during this uh, flight to the Ford. Uh, we talked about the Nazgul theme way back when we first went to Isengard and Saruman was talking about the Nine leaving, uh, but or maybe the episode before that, whatever it is. We've kind of talked about the Nazgul theme already, but this is kind of where that gets probably played to the max uh, up until at least until Return of the King and when they descend on Minas Tirith. Um, so like we've kind of talked about, a lot of these musical cues, these leitmotifs, they intermingle, and then they themselves have their own little arcs and climax. And it's pretty appropriate to put that here with kind of where they, um, this whole first act or first part of Fellowship, um, they have been the antagonist, so it makes sense to have their score climax here at the Flight to the Fords. So one of the big book questions that comes out of these, uh, well, this scene in particular is the omission of Glorfindel. Um, I'm going to say off the bat, uh, that's fine. Get rid of him. It's all right. Um, I love Glorfindel. I think he's brilliant. Um, I He's lots of fun. Um, he's also uh, one of the most broke-ass haggard characters uh, Tolkien ever writes because he keeps bringing them. Like, like Glorfindel uh, uh, essentially acts as like, elvish jesus in some way elven jesus in some ways because he gets resurrected after he kills a balrog at the fall of gondolin and shows up <laughs> at the council of rivendell with like no explanation um, and tolkien didn't mean to do it he just really liked the name glorfindel which is fair enough it's a banger of a name um, and then kind of had to go back and write a backstory to justify why glorfindel was there um, and the backstory is quite fun and cool um, and it deals with like the idea of resurrection the like tethering of the elves to the to, to Arda to the fate of the earth. Um, they literally can't die. That sort of thing. Um, all of that I feel like is basically immaterial and would be wildly unhelpful to include in the films. So I, though I love Glorfindel and though I think he is a great and fun character, um, and his role in absolutely murking a Balrog is great for dunking, dunking on Gandalf. Uh, it's totally fine that he's not there. Um. And I also think uh, it shows in some ways what the benefit is of making these movies, not like Tolkien made the books, which is that you can sit down and be like, right, does this character actually need to be there? Do we really need to reuse these names? What happens if we reuse these names and then not make essentially mistakes like this, which is fine. In the text, uh, Glorfindel was kind of out searching for Frodo and Strider, much like Arwen is. And there is a um, neat little thing, I think, when they're crossing one of the rivers, not the Bruinen, but uh, maybe something else that's like a smaller river before they uh, get to the ford. Um, and uh, Aragorn discovers a gem buried in the ground, uh, which is a signifier that, hey, this pass has at least been checked. Um, there is like, you know, maybe some sort of reinforcements or help coming, or this path has been temporarily cleared for to allow them to, um, you know, kind of uh, take this path forward. And that gets me to another thing, which is, is something we've talked a lot, a lot about, uh, already is the fact that, um, they kind of 
you know, askew the time or the time uh, span that some of these events happen from the books. Um, because everything from Frodo getting uh, stabbed on Weathertop, uh, to Arwen arriving, uh, to her ride to Rivendell, it all seems like it's all very happening pretty much in quick succession. Um, that there isn't a lot of room to breathe, even though they do mention that they are six days away from Rivendell. I think part of my headcanon was that Arwen cast a magic spell to make the horse go faster. Um, so that in six, instead of six days, it ended up being like a day and a half or two days or, um, it's really hard to tell what that uh, passage of time is uh, through the films, but it does create that heightened sense of urgency because in the books, Frodo does spend some time, um, like he's obviously very wounded, um, but he's not like instantly on death's door and incapable of doing anything. Um, there is a part of the time where they go off the road and Frodo is able to kind of walk a little bit on his own or they still have, uh, I believe, build a pony with them. Uh, so there, he's able to ride. He's not completely just um, a sack of man flesh that needs to be carried <laughs> like he is here. Yeah, and I think this is also sort of the, the difference between what the purpose and the context of the books are and what the purpose and context of the films are, which is that, uh, you know, the in the books, they're kind of trying to show, like, the the psychological horror of war and having to, like, in, in real life, in the trenches in World War One, if you get shot in the arm and have to have your ass medevaced to the... the, the uh, like to the safety of uh, your side. It's not going to be a quick process. It's not going to be over in an hour. It's going to be slow. It's going to be painful. You're going to spend a lot of time thinking about death, wondering if you are actually going to survive it. There is like a psychological terror element to it. In the films, which aren't really as concerned with like the psychological effects and like moral and political implications of war, you don't really need to do that sort of thing. You can just be like, right, he's wounded. This means we have to like up the pace. This is more about heightening the tension in the film than anything else. And you can just like get the fuck out of the Trollshaws and into Rivendell. And it really doesn't change anything substantively about what you're trying to say or do. Yeah, that actually makes me think of, I think this is a Vietnam era uh, short story, but it's called The Things We Carry. Mm. Um, and it's very much a story that kind of starts about, you know, soldiers like talking about the things they carry, which, you know, um, their gun, you know, their rations and, you know, all their just equipment. Um, and eventually the things we carry ends up being about the trauma, the pain, the horrors of what they've seen. Um, and it just, it's something I think about when I, when I've been reading the Lord of the Rings recently is the things that we carry both in terms of like Sam carrying, you know, a frying pan and a little salt from the Shire with him, but then also things like Frodo, um, you know, carrying the wound that he suffered at Weathertop with him and all the trauma that went with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is like this sort of like ongoing heaviness of, um, you know, the world upon Frodo's shoulders and, and the elves are kind of interesting in a way. And I think, I think in retrospect, it's probably why they do have to nerf the elves a bit at Helm's Deep, but the elves kind of show up and carry this weight. Um, well, one elf, Arwen shows up to carry this weight for Frodo, um, in a way that doesn't necessarily happen in the book, which kind of lifts the limitation on like magic or like, uh, human or not human, but like interpersonal help in the movies, um, and does kind of, beg the question like um well why couldn't frodo have had more help and the answer is obviously because narratively it doesn't fucking work and would be a very boring movie but in the books there is more of an emphasis on only one person is strong enough to have done this um, and it is or actually uh, in one of the letters i was just reading tolkien talks about this and it's not that frodo was strong enough it was both it was that he was both strong and weak enough to do it he was strong enough to give up his entire 
like his health and well-being for eternity uh, to deliver the ring to Mount Doom. But he was also weak enough to not throw the ring in himself, cast the ring in himself and do it. And because if he'd been strong enough to do that, he would have been strong enough to take the ring and that would have, to Tolkien's mind, and I think rather incorrectly, would have encouraged him to take the ring for his own. But yes, uh, the, there is this sense of heaviness or lack of heaviness in, in the films versus the book that I think is uh, quite like an interesting ongoing point. Yeah, and um, w- one of the important relationships, at least in terms of narrative impact, um, that we get introduced to here is the relationship between Arwen and Aragorn. Um, and the films will actually kind of contrive a little bit to make sure that they get a little more screen time together. Um, because of, like I mentioned, they kind of tie Arwen to Frodo's fate. Um, you know, they've obviously inserted her here where she wasn't really there in the text. And then, you know, in the two towers, they basically have an Aragorn dream sequence just to get them, um, you know, on the same set together, you know, playing off each other, Viggo Morrison and Liv Tyler. Um, but we don't see that much, or we don't see as much, I would say, of them directly interacting, or at least directly during the saga like we do um, in the film. So I kind of wanted to let Emily talk about what we know about Arwen and Aragorn uh, from the text and specifically from the appendices that she kind of laid out earlier. Yeah, so the answer to what do we know about Aragorn and Arwen is not a whole huge amount. Um, the bulk of their story is given in uh, Appendix A. Appendix, yeah, Appendix A. No, Appendix F. Whatever, one of them. Uh, scrabble back uh, 30 minutes in this and I will tell you the correct answer. Um, but uh, the author of that story, which is the tale of Aragorn and Arwen, is uh, Barry here, who is the grandson of Faramir and Eowyn. Uh, spoilers. Um uh, yes, uh, I, sorry, in the notes I give a whole bunch of genealogical information about about Barahir that absolutely nobody cares about, but, you know, I love uh, Eowyn and Faramir deeply, so there it is. Um, anyways, uh, the story goes something like this. Um, Aragorn, who is being fostered in Rivendell, as we know, sings a song called The Lay of Baron and Luthien. This is where I'm going to pause, and we're going to do, like, if this were a TV show, we'd do, like, the wavy effect as we go back in time. Um, Baron and Luthien are characters in the Silmarillion, um, and they are also Arwen's great, great, great grandparents. Someone's going to have to check me on one of the greats there. Um, Baron was a mortal man. Uh, Luthien was half-elf, half-Maiar. Uh, the Maiar are the same race as as Gandalf, um, but not as, sorry, uh, slightly different. Um in order, so they they meet and they fall in love. Um, in order for Luthien's father to allow Baron to marry her, Baron was charged with stealing back one of the Silmarils from Morgoth's crown. I'm not going to try and explain the Silmarils. They're basically like the rings, but gem, like the rings of power, but gems, um, and cause a lot more problems for people. Um, Baron, who is driven wild with desire and love for Luthien, uh, actually does go to Morgoth's camp to his mass it's not a camp it's a citadel it is a fortress it's the dumbest thing anybody has ever done um I, there's like an ask reddit thread that's like popular right now that's like what's what's the dumbest thing you've done when you were horny and this is that for baron like what is he doing anyways so mortal man no special powers goes running to uh morgoth who's the big 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 bad the the devil's uh fortress to try and steal a jewel from his crown um it obviously goes so badly um uh and baron is immediately captured by sauron 
Luthien has a dream about this and uh, sets out to save him from himself, basically. Uh, lots of stuff happens in between. There's like many, many chapters of the Silmarillion are dedicated to building up the context to this. But she also gets uh, an insanely badass dog named Juan, who is my favorite. Um, and he is Clifford the Big Red Dog, except neither red nor particularly big. But he is, Tolkien goes out of his way to say, the biggest, baddest motherfucker in Middle-earth. So were there. Um, she goes to uh, Sauron's citadel where Baron is captured and she sings a song. Um, and Baron, recognizing the song, but thinking he's hallucinating it, sings it back. Oh, lovely. Um, and Juan and Luthien be back all of Sauron's soldiers um, until Sauron himself has to come out to actually take out the trash. Um, at which point, Luthien kicks his ass five ways to Friday, literally forcing him to give the key, give up the keys to the prison, uh, which is cool as hell. Um, and she rescues Baron and they marry and then there's a whole bunch of melodrama because none of these people are ever chill um luthien is then given the choice of mortality she can either stay immortal and live with her family forevermore in valinor or she can become immortal and live out her life with baron and die um and she chooses to live out her life with baron she makes the choice of mortality um and they have a son named dior who has a daughter named elwing who marries Eärendil and gives an Oh, the way I've got this written in my notes is kind of weird. Um, Elwing then gives married to, or gives birth, sorry, to Elrond and Elros, who we know. Um, anyways, <laughs> uh, wavy screen effect here. We're going forward in time now. Um, Aragorn is singing his song. He thinks he sees Luthien walking across his path. Wow, he's singing about her, and there she is. Ah, no, but it's not Luthien. It is Arwen. Uh, he falls instantly in love, um, and Elrond <laughs> rightly intervenes and is like no, uh, you, Aragorn, will either become the greatest king since Elendil himself, or you will fall into darkness, which isn't like exactly a ballsy prophecy. I mean, you're either going to succeed or you're going to fail is not really what I would pay money for. But anyways, um, Aragorn, not exactly one for like calm reactions to things. Um, in turn, prophecies that Arwen will be forced to choose between Elrond and Aragorn. <laughs> Yikes. Um, anyways, 30 years later, uh, Aragorn and Arwen meet once more in uh, Lothlorien on the hill of Karen Amroth. Uh, and Galadriel, who is uh, Arwen's maternal grandmother, is playing wing woman for Aragorn. She like dresses him up to look like Baron and then like ushers him along and is like, yeah, go go behave like Baron. This will work. This will really work. Um, and they uh, plight their troth. Uh, they say that when uh, Aragorn becomes the king of Gondor, they will marry. Um, and after the ring war, they do in fact wed. And all of this is part of the tale of Aragorn and Arwen. They have a lot of kids. Uh, uh, Eldarion, as I will come back to repeatedly throughout this uh, podcast, who is the little boy you see running around in Arwen's fever dreams, um, is not their first child. They have two or three daughters before Eldarion shows up, so it is mega fucked up that Eldarion gets all of the emphasis. Um, nevertheless, uh, they're married for 120 years, and when Aragorn is about to die, uh, they have a <laughs> tremendously heartbreaking conversation where Arwen's like, the price of mortality is bitter and this really sucks and I don't feel at home with your people. And rather than have the conversation with her, Aragorn straight up dies. Um, and Arwen forsakes the land of Gondor, which she's lived in for like something like 100 and something 20 years, and goes to Lorien, which is empty of the elves, and she dies alone. Uh, cheerful. So that's it. That is the cheerful and lovely romantic tale of Aragorn and Arwen as relayed to us by Barahir, grandson of Faramir, through the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien, and it is delightful. Wow, I, I, I literally did not know it had 
uh, you know, they they had a good run, so I don't want to call it a grim ending. But, <laughs> you know, I, I like Aragorn just like, I guess I'll just die now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, on top of dying, Aragorn is also known for, you know, living and healing, which helps people live. And we get mention of the Ethelus plant, uh, which he instructs uh, Sam Samwise to go help him find to, you know, maybe slow down um, the poisoning or the you know fading of frodo baggins uh what's ethelus or what can you tell us about it emily yeah it is uh, a <laughs> it's actually quite funny because the numenorians esteem it quite highly um it's obviously very very important for healing um and everybody else in middle earth so ethelus uh, uh, com- comes from numenor the island of numenor uh which is miles away on the sea from middle earth um and the numenorians bring it with them and plant it everywhere um and the numenorians are like this is great this is the paracetamol the ibuprofen of plants and we should always have it around and everybody else in middle earth is like it is a weed and it's an invasive species stop planting it everywhere you are killing our crops and this is not me exaggerating tolkien goes out of his way to explain this in the books they fucking hate ethelus and king's foil uh so that's it um but it is incredibly helpful for aragorn um as he's trying to heal um it's it's helpful for other people as they're trying to heal but it's kind of like a booster for aragorn when he's trying to heal and much later in the books and it's not done in the movies which is a fair enough adaptation but in the books when uh Faramir and Eowyn are injured in the Houses of the Healing and knocked out by the Witch King under the uh, Black Breath, as it's called. Um, there's no one who can save them. They are literally at death's door and no known cures no cures known to man will save them. Um, some, uh, amazing, I say some, she's a brilliant uh, little healer named Yareth, uh, says, well, if only Gondor had a king, uh, because the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. And Gandalf hears this and goes, you're right, if only Gondor had a king, and marches his doodle ass out to the camp where they're, uh, all the, the Grey Company are hanging after the Pelennor Fields and is like, you gotta go and dude, you gotta save these people. These are like really important political figures for you. And so Aragorn goes running up to save them. And this is where uh aragorn basically gets outed as a king because he's like doing his athletic stuff um and doing his curing and healing and stuff and uh trying to be low-key about it because he doesn't want everybody to know he's the king yet um and faramir is like sup king pretty much exactly that uh, immediately calls him out as king and the rumor spreads from there instantly <laughs> that aragorn is the king um and it all starts because yorith uh says the hands of a king are the hands of a healer. So there's that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you had in the notes that uh, the it definitely has more of a mythical aspect in the films. And, you know, like it's more powerful in Aragorn's hand. It's like in an RPG where you can kind of stack powers. Um, you know, you want to equip Aragorn with Ethelus as opposed to equipping someone else with it um, because it'll just be more effective from him. And I think some of that is also um, at this point in the story, at least in the film, uh, we don't know Strider's background. We don't know he's Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Um, we don't know he's a Sealdor's heir. So when they mentioned this, you know, the first several times I watched this movie, it felt like, you know, Bear Grylls, Man versus Wild. It's just like survivalist. This is just something that might help slow the poison or, you know, the fading, like I said. Um, it's not really treated as some kind of uh, magical herb. It's just kind of like, oh, this is a thing that, you you know, take honey and lemon if you have a sore throat kind of thing. Um, homeopathic, I think is the word you use. So, um, it definitely plays very differently. I don't think it's a 
super important part for the films to play up in any real way. Um, but it's probably, this is probably their equivalent of like an Easter egg, more or less, um, as cursed as that phrase is. <laughs> um, and then we'll close out with something a little fun, I guess. I don't know if it's fun, but I think it's fun. Is that all of this, um, the initial part where Arwen arrives and Frodo is kind of dying happens in the shadow of three troll statues, which in at this point in the film's production is really kind of just meant to be an Easter egg um, because um, the three, the three troll statues are, were once three live trolls that played a much bigger part in the Hobbit movies. Um, but they're um, in the theatrical editions. They're just kind of like lampshaded. They're just kind of there in the background and there for you, the viewer to notice, but they don't specifically call it out. But in the extended edition, when, Frodo's kind of having his fever dream. Sam tries to, you know, maybe ease his pain or distract him a little bit by saying, hey, Frodo, it's Bilbo's trolls as he's looking up at these three massive trolls or troll statues or whatever you want to call them, hardened trolls. Um, and their names are Tom, Bert, and William. And, you know, if we, when we, whatever, do the Hobbit movies, we'll talk about these trolls and what happened to them in a little more detail. But my one lament about the Hobbit movies, or sorry, I have many laments about the Hobbit movies, but this is one of like the things like, oh, this will be a cool set piece to see when they, you know, they get there and what happens to them. And then when the Hobbit movie actually got there, I'm like, wow, this scene is very long and very underwhelming and not as cool as I had pictured in my head. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess while we're here, um, the lands just north of where all this kind of stuff is taking place is generally considered lands that the trolls... Um, whether did or, di or, you know, currently do, um, this is where they live for the most part. Um, and we see in the books, um, the fellows or these hobbits and Aragorn come across what could have been old Trobit, uh, Trobit, uh, <laughs> troll holes and, uh, troll houses. Um, and, uh, you know, it gets a little more attention, but trolls for the most part are pretty much totally askewed other than the danger in Moria and that they're part of Sauron's army, uh, in Return of the King. Yeah, they their best outing in these films, and it is a good outing, to be clear. This is not me complaining, is Boromir going, they have a cave troll? <laughs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycapmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, which goes towards this and other projects I've been working on, and also has stretch goals that will allow us to do more episodes um, on The Lord of the Rings. And speaking of Manuclear Bomb, hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, and you can find me saying completely buckwild shit over at jrrtweeting on twitter.com. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So, until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. <laughs> <laughs>